Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Innovating Church podcast, the church pod or the podcast for church innovations. Uh, Patrick, would you introduce our guest today? Well, we have with us the Reverend Steen Olson. That's with an E. So he's a Dane. In fact, he was born in Denmark. And uh, when he was a young boy, uh, his uh, parents emigrated to New Zealand. And so he is um, <clears throat> a citizen of New Zealand, I take it. He uh, became a Lutheran pastor, was a pastor in uh, both Australia and New Zealand, uh, eventually became a bishop in that church, and then began to work uh, in the national offices in mission development and redevelopment and evangelism, has been responsible, oh, I would guess for 30 years for that sort of work in uh, the church uh, uh, the Lutheran Church in Australia. He is uh, internationally known, uh, well-traveled, and a part of uh, Church Innovations uh, sponsored International Research Consortium. So he covers a fairly wide range. He and his wife, Ruth, are key players in the story that uh, we've invited him to talk to us about because he's written a, a book entitled Jacob's Ladder, subtitled Missional Church in the 1970s. Um, <clears throat> those of you who are somewhat familiar uh, with the, the various sundry movements of the 1970s, there was a movement called the Jesus Movement and there was another very powerful uh, renewal movement, the uh, Holy Spirit movement or the charismatic renewal movement. And Ruth and Steen are right about the effects of those movements in relationship to the founding of a truly uh, remarkable, uh, I don't know if I'd call it a new church start or, or what, on the streets of Adelaide in the 1970s. So that's the subject uh, primarily. Um, and uh, just to be honest with you, it's a wonderful review of some of the basics of uh, you know the, the 80s, 90s and on uh, missional church theory and church development theory. And um, it's, a good read. It's an easy read, but it's um, it's a messy read. That is to say, it you can tell this is about real life, uh, and that's a long introduction for us. But this is uh, Steen, and we're really happy to have you with us. And before we get into our conversation, let us pray. Holy God, we thank you for bringing us together across time. Lord, bless our conversation. And may we feel the winds of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So thank you, Steen, for being with us today. Um, so would you just uh, tell us about Jacob's Ladder? 
Yes, thank you, Rachel and Pat, and good to be with you. Um, Jacob's Ladder really covered the 1970s. It began in September 1970, and by the end of 1979, it was wound up. It began, began as a coffee lounge, uh, which was set up to reach young people uh, in, in the, on the streets and the communities and the various places and things that they were doing, and then gradually formed into a Christian community and indeed a church uh, that was made up of those of us who had become part of the work and also those who'd come to faith through it. Um, the decisive moment probably came in March 1974, when we recently got our own pastor at the beginning of that year. And in March, there was a festival in Adelaide. Uh, and as part of that, uh, a number of people from across Australia, together with us, set up a Christian festival called Kairos 74. And so for two weeks, we had uh, people from all over Australia working with us and with others in Adelaide, uh, reaching out to young people, mainly on the streets and in their various settings. The outcome of that was that after two weeks, everybody else went home and we had 30 young people who'd come to faith. And because we'd been the, the geographic center of that, we had large premises in the middle of town, up two flights of stairs, hence Jacob's Ladder. Uh, they mostly identified with us. And so we had to try to nurture them. And as we grappled with that and wrestled with that, uh, we invited some to come and stay with us, but that became too much. Uh, you know, a number of kids with all sorts of problems um, perhaps with a married couple, maybe with small children. Uh, and so eventually we set up larger houses where there could be a team of Christians as well as young people uh, being nurtured. And that in turn then developed into a community that was engaged in, in all sorts of things from a bikey gang or club uh, to uh, drama, to music, to worship, of course. Um, to work with universities and schools uh, and so on. So, so that roughly is, is the overview, if you like, um, the bird's eye view uh, of, of the work of Jacob's Ladder. You mentioned um, in, in, an e in the email that you sent after I had sent the questions to you, um, that it was not unusual, um, this, these are your words, that it was not unusual for someone to come to faith one day and be in the pub witnessing to mates the next day. Um, could, could you talk a little bit about that? Um, I don't, maybe you have some anecdotal stories. Yes. Um, about that. It, it, that, that certainly happened regularly. I, I have to admit, even then, I wondered a little bit about what they might have been saying and might not have been saying, but in effect, um, anything that was communicated wrongly got sorted out in due time. Uh, and because they were mainly there talking about a person, something actually communicated. Uh, so they may not have understood all the ins and outs of, of Christian theology, but they were talking about Jesus. 
and and as people were, responded and were interested in what had happened to one of their friends and and how they were now talking about something that they were very excited about of course they would come back and meet some of the rest of us and we'd have further conversations and and so on uh, and writing the book i've of course been in contact with most of our communities still alive i've been in contact with people and one of the things in the book is is each uh, of those who were willing and able to actually wrote a very short summary of how being part of jacob's ladder had impacted the rest of their lives and the many of the kids who came to faith in those sort of ways have actually served in Christian works in different roles and so forth around the world uh, since. And currently of that community, we have 75 email addresses. Many of those represent two or more people. Uh, so there's still quite a community that's in conversation. And of course, looking back, people can reflect on, on what impact some of these uh, unusual but also very dynamic encounters had on the rest of their lives you know i i, I want to go back to uh three or four sentences there because uh just to point them out because they're tremendous lessons for anyone who wants to understand what uh you know a really key concept uh, at church innovations and that is uh ecclesiogenesis to use the fancy term how does god uh, give birth to church we've been so busy in our heritage uh, in in mainline uh, protestantism talking about maintaining the faith and passing on the faith that we forgot that, that god creates church <laughs> and and it's going to be messy um and that it does look a lot like the New Testament. One can imagine in Antioch, uh, someone coming to faith and the next day uh, talking someone else, uh, uh, talking about the experience they've had with Jesus, as uh, Steen says. It's the only business the church was in before we thought we had to maintain all of Western culture and uh, determine everybody's moral, political, and economic life. The, the movement was started by someone's encounter with Jesus and sharing that with someone else. Um, th there it is. Uh, and it's astounding to me. Um, it, it began in a messy public space, you know, a company of strangers sharing a shared set of actions and that action had nothing to do with the church ostensibly, right? There was a festival in Adelaide and a bunch of Christians said, hey, let's go be with them uh, during that festival. And at the end of that time, 30 uh, wanted to say, you know, I, I'm with Jesus. Um, it's, uh, it's classic uh, missional. It's joining God's mission in God's world, not trying to get people to come to church. It's walking with them and discovering what God's up to in their life. Third thing Esteem said, and it just kind of blows my mind. Um, 
you got 30 people, what are you going to do with them? I mean, uh, you know, you can't just say, hey, so long, it's been good to know you. Uh, you're stuck. And they didn't know what to do. So they invited some of them uh, to live with them. They, they discovered that, believe it or not, they brought some, uh, some of their real life to the uh, table. And it was a mess. And, and he describes the messes. And it's, you know, all the messes you expect, sex, uh, power, uh, money, everything that's really human. Uh, comes through the door with these folks. And so they discover, hey, we need community to do this. We can't do this just on the basis of uh, how we organize the, the regular family. And then this, to, you know, all these different forms church takes in the story he just told, right? Clubs, groups, drama. I mean, you know, it just it just multiplies in creativity and chaos. The 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 chaos that Steen describes in this book is well, it's exhausting and and uh, it, it takes the young to deal with it. And then out of that, what we think is the beginning of church comes about a congregation, right? So the order of God's ecclesiogenesis, God's creating church in this story, is the very opposite of how we think church is created, right? Yeah, we went through that. The very whole, opposite. We went through that whole process where the calling of a pastor necessitated a partnership with a congregation, St. Stephen's Lutheran Church in downtown Adelaide, and they put their money where their mouth was and uh, have done so in all sorts of different ways since, all credit to them. But part of the initial plan was that people who came to faith should come back to St. Stephen's. And very quickly, that didn't work. Uh, one time, uh, some of our folk were there at a worship service and found it a little boring, perhaps. And so they went out and got into the vestry and relieved the pastor of the contents of his wallet. Um, he was very good about it, uh, I have to say. But, uh, but that kind of was the situation we were working in. I mean, Ruth and I lost wedding presents that someone decided to take with them when in the middle of the night they decided they'd had enough and walked out. Um, but in the end and through all sorts of trials and, and failures and so forth, uh, worship began that the kids found that they could relate to. And we held it in the coffee house where they were felt at home uh, and gradually a congregation formed. Uh, and the church with all the best intentions and also some excitement and a lot of support for what was happening really found it difficult to cope with the fact that we were anything but a model congregation and yet they wanted us to adopt the constitution for model congregations uh, which led to all sorts of, of, of problems the 
those partnership with St. Stephen's lasted less than a year because there simply wasn't time for the pastor to fulfill his responsibilities there as well as with us. And so that left our pastor as being without a call. And in our Lutheran setup, that's a very vulnerable place to be. Uh, and so uh, we were working to form a congregation that, that could be acceptable to the church so that we could call our own pastor but that never happened. So am I right to uh, Jacob's Ladder as it existed in in the 70s doesn't doesn't exist that anymore like it did, correct? Correct. The community was wound up in in uh, in the middle of 1979 and uh, people really scattered to the four winds. By that time, I and, and a, a friend of ours who was also involved had graduated from seminary and gone to our first parishes. Uh, and so, no, it, it really existed only in the 1970s. What has, I've found fascinating in, in the contact I've had all, over the years, but also in researching and writing this book, is that while you might look at that as a failure, in actual fact, in, in, the, in the kingdom of God, it was a scattering. And people mm -hmm. went out and worked in all sorts of different places. And we somehow managed to stay in touch. We somehow, a significant number of people uh, kept uh, in contact with one another. And so uh, over the years, every now and again, we'd have a get together somewhere and those who could come would come. Um, but in, in actual fact, it, it seemed like it was kind of a seed making operation and then that seed was scattered by the winds. Mm -hmm. uh, one shouldn't draw too close parallels, but there are obvious biblical examples in terms of the persecution in Jerusalem and so forth uh, that mm -hmm. actually functioned also in that sort of way. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm, I'm curious, what did the Lutheran Church in Australia learn from this whole experience? Um, there, there, are, there are two possible examples, two possible answers, I'm sorry, to that. Uh, one is not much, the other is a great deal. Um, in some ways, and, and bear in mind, of course, I spent... 20 years in, in the, or over 20 years in the senior leadership of, of the Lutheran Church of Australia and the Lutheran Church of New Zealand is part of the Lutheran Church of Australia. So, so that kind of over, overlaps. And, and in some ways, uh, you have to say we can still keep making the same mistakes. But uh, I think there is a greater flexibility now and there is a greater understanding that not everything looks and sounds the same. Uh, and it can still be valid. Um, we don't want to claim that Jacob's letter was the only thing that was happening or that is happening. Uh, and many other things have also had a great impact. But uh, the church is church and, and it's still, you know, sitting at some of those tables for 12 years as one of the bishops of the church you know, you grapple with issues uh, that mostly don't, by the time they get there, don't have simple, obvious ways forward. 
and so um, there is a certain sense in which the institution tends to win, if I can put it that way. Um, the tried and true that the actual change that is sustainable uh, is, is very hard uh, to achieve. Uh, the defaults are very strong. And that's one of the reasons I'm really excited about the work that Church Innovations is doing in terms of what actually produces lasting change in congregations. So, um, so it's a mixed bag, as one would expect, as one always is. Good things happened, bad things happened, people were helped, people were hurt. Uh, but through it all, somehow, through these broken, weak vessels, God was at work. And for that, we're very grateful. I, I just want to underline a theme there that you see in the book beautifully. And uh, that is that God is at work doing a good thing in them is, of course, a direct quote from the second chapter of uh, Philippians. Um, uh, right after the phrase, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for God is at work in you doing a good thing. Uh, it's very interesting uh, line from Paul, and the book is a beautiful illustration of that. And, you, and the issues you're driving at, uh, Rachel, uh, ones which you understand very well in your setting is <clears throat> the interests of belonging, of stability, of identity uh, in an immigrant church that's been relatively successful at creating a little home away from home in Minnesota for immigrants who now are being asked, like Jacob's Ladder, to, um, to, to walk out and be a part of and walk with people on the streets in their everyday lives and uh, discover what God is up to amongst them and, and the uh, conflict, which is where I wanna have Steen go after this, is uh, natural. There's going to be lots of conflict. People are helped, people are hurt as Dean notes. But in all of that, the work which God is up to is reconciling the world to God. That's Paul's vision. Um, and this is a beautiful book to illustrate that. All the messiness in the midst of it, you see reconciliation happening both between God and particular persons and God and uh, the people in those communities. But I wanna press the, the issue of what was the role of conflict uh, in this story? Because I think it's an extremely important part of this story. Conflict, of course, started early on um, in the coffee house with kids who came up there and upturned fire extinguishers and had fights and whatever else and uh, many times and some of those times are told in the book 
we had to get the police involved. I personally laid charges against some of them to bring things under control. And I think by and large with all the, the problems and whatever, that particular conflict we handled reasonably well. The conflict with church leaders looking back, I'm not sure that we handled quite so well. Uh, part of that was simply our youthful arrogance, our distrust of people in authority, uh, and, and all the things that went with that in the 1970s. Uh, remember, this was the time of the Vietnam War protests. Uh, there were many other things just going on in society. I have the people we dealt with in church leadership at the time are all gone to be with the Lord. But in the years that followed Jacob's letter, and even at the time, uh, I, I was very good personal friends with all of them. Um, but part of that problem with the, with the conflict between us and the church uh, was uh, we were relatively powerless and so in a way if if uh, this was going to progress constructively then some concessions had to be made in our direction and eventually they were uh, to some extent but the negative side of the conflict uh, was that in an already exhausting environment, it drained further energy out of us, right? Here on the one hand, a pastor, two seminary students and three lay elders had to argue theology with, the, with, with seminary professors. Um, and that was a bit of an uneven battle. We did eventually get an advocate who helped us in that regard. Um, but it, it drained our time, it drained our energy. And so with the chaos in which we were working, you know, again and again, we never delivered the reports that were required in a timely fashion, if I can put it that way. And you know, subsequent life has shown me the frustration that that sort of thing can cause. Uh, on the positive side, it, it helped make us who we are today. Right, the actual the conflict, and because it, it was never hateful and personal in that sense, as far as relating to me in any case, uh, so it didn't have those negative connotations. But uh, iron shapes sharpens iron or shapes iron, and arguing with theology professors, not in the classroom, which we did, of course, as well but in a situa in another situation, uh, I'm sure helped shape our theology and our thinking and so forth. Part of the problem with that conflict was that we understood that the work of the Holy Spirit was just absolutely essential to what we're doing. You can't talk about an almighty God to street kids and then simply act as though it's just a doctrine or a nice idea. That, that really, that, you know, their, their meters for detecting that sort of substance are very strong. And I'm trying not to use any Australianisms here uh, for sensitive American ears. Uh, but so, so the work of the Holy Spirit was very strong. And yet it seemed to us that 
that what scripture says about the work of the Holy Spirit was being read through particular lenses. Today, I'd describe that as an enlightenment lens, for example. Um, that that kind of meant that we um, we were not communicating because they had very fixed ideas. They'd say they didn't. Uh, they thought they were being totally objective and we were being subjective which is not the sort of distinction that anybody would argue today I don't think I think we understand that a lot better so so the conflict we had uh, in regard to the church I don't think was managed well by us or by the church but on the other hand trying to stand back now with the balcony view and look at at what came out of this uh, I think that was part of what caused the dispersal, right? That was part of what caused the gospel to actually go out in all sorts of different ways. And uh, lots of our, or numbers of our young people got involved with youth with a mission. Uh, one of our people is still on the, on the Australian uh, National YWAM board and runs their mercy operation uh, even today, now 40 years later. Uh, so they went on to other things and did other things and served in different ways. Some of them just in local congregations, others in wider ministries. And while the conflict was unpleasant in, at the time, I think it also had some good results. We shouldn't be afraid of conflict. Uh, we should maybe learn to manage it better than we did. But but it can bring some great things to happen in the in the kingdom of God, as we see also in the New Testament. Well, and in the Old Testament, for that matter. So I'm curious, how has um, given you, you've mentioned now a couple of times this dispersal, these seeds going out, um, and I'm wondering how that sort of um, that image, that idea, that that. Um, that has come from Jacob's Ladder and the experience of that community, how has that formed um, subsequent church plants since? Um, well, it helped form me, and uh, I've been very involved in establishing our current church planting program. Um, and others went on to other new ministries and that sort of way. <clears throat> but uh, it, it wasn't sort of an organizational thing that this led to that, led to that, led to that type thing. It was part of the journey that then the Lord took us on. Now, one of our people writes in the book about a vision he had or a dream, can't quite remember which, whether he was asleep or not at the time, uh, of Jacob's ladder being like a log fire on the ground and the devil coming along and and kicking the logs apart so that the fire would die out. But what actually happened as the logs were kicked apart was that they, they caught other things on fire out where they were spread. Uh, and so therefore the fire didn't go out, it spread, but it was no longer a fire where it had been. I don't know if that makes sense, but, but uh, it is interesting when you listen to people's stories from, and all this bear in mind is 40 to 50 years ago. Um, when you listen to people's stories, 
uh, and their memories and they get a chance to tell those stories, you learn all sorts of things about how God works in the world. I think that's one of the strengths of the book. Uh, uh, and it took a, a lot of both savvy about how to tell a story and patience and generosity. There are lots of individual stories present. And uh, that, that becomes uh, very in, both instructive, persuasive, moving and inspiring. But it, it had to take a lot of gathering and patience to, uh, to pull that together. But it, it's part of uh, the charm of the book. Yeah, I, lots of came from stories. I also, two of our people uh, had retained a lot of the written materials from the time. Uh, mine all went early on because I loaned it to someone who was writing a thesis and he never returned it. But I managed to find the thesis in the Lutheran archives where I also found lots of other um, useful information and files and magazines from congregations from the time and so forth. So uh, the book is, is both our memories, but it's also the documentation that we could find. Mind you, that's clearly an incomplete record, though we do have all the magazines that we published and, and they are now available on our website um, so that people can actually go back and read and look at uh, what we did at the time. And the illustrations in the book, beautifully done by our artist at the time, Narelle Beard, uh, all come actually from the material, the artwork that she did uh, for our, the magazines we published uh, back in the 1970s. So, um, so yes, um, long time ago, but uh, people still remember the good things that God did in their lives. Well, Steen, we're about ready to wrap up, and um, I will make sure that when we um, when this podcast goes um, live, that it will um, include the information about where folks can get the book, um, because that was on the information you shared with me. So I will make sure that that gets shared so that our re our listeners can um, can get um, this book and. Um, and read about this, the inspiring story of this community. Um, anything else um, before we um, end our time that we need to know about Jacob's Ladder? To me, um, it's not a story about exceptionally gifted and clever people uh, who do wonderful things. It's a story about weak, flawed human beings who do ordinary things but through whom an extraordinary God does great things. And uh, that is, is something that I kind of need to remind myself of even now in retirement day by day, that yes, I stumble along, but through it all, God is at work. And a lot of what happens and what God does, we will never see until we stand with the Lord on that last day. Uh, so a lot of it 
is is not something we're aware of but every now and again god in his goodness draws back the curtain as it were and allows us to see a little bit of the effect of what he was doing and for me writing this book has been uh, that sort of an experience god drawing back the curtain a little bit and me being able to hear others speak of how God works and thus being able to say, thank you, Lord. It was a privilege to be part of it. Amen. Uh, Steen, will you uh, pray for us as we go on our way today? Sure. Lord God, we thank and praise you for the privilege of walking with you through life and having you as in our lives day by day and moment by moment working through us in ways we don't even begin to understand. And Lord, as we look back, we pray also that those who are young in this day may actually also have that experience and be able to look back in years to come and say, thank you, Lord, for the way that you worked through our weak and flawed efforts and for the way that you continue to do so. So Lord, above all, we thank and praise you for the privilege of being part of what you're doing in your world. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And thank you everyone for joining us. This has been another episode of the Innovating Church podcast with me, Rachel Stout, and Pat Kiefert, and our guest, Steen Olson. Um, God's peace to you all. <laughs>